Welcome to the podcast, and thank you for listening. My name is Ian Castleberry. I'm a writer, editor, and podcaster. I can say that writer part with a bit more confidence this week. If you follow me on Twitter and or Facebook, both at Ian Cass, that's I-A-N-C-A-S-S, you've already seen my personal news announcement. I'm back at Awful Announcing, covering sports media. A lot of the work I did there previously also focused on sports and pop culture, like reviews of documentaries and movies, usually sports biopics. I'll mostly be writing, but we'll probably also do some editing eventually, once some of the plans we have in mind get moving forward. As I joked on social media, most of the sports media news these days is about people resigning from jobs, like the entire writing and editorial staff of Deadspin did last week, leaving a zombie website that has probably seen its best days pass for private equity ownership that didn't seem to understand what made Deadspin work. But here I am taking a job instead. I'm certainly grateful to have been offered a job, considering the current state of this industry, and it's nice to be welcomed back so warmly. To be candid, maybe a bit more than I should be, I originally left Awful Announcing because I was burned out. In work situations, I've often been someone who sees something that needs to be done and jumps in, whether it's my job or not. Eventually, I took on too much. I worked throughout the day and on weekends, rarely taking time off. That led to an expectation that I would continue carrying that kind of workload and probably let some people off the hook. A lot of cracks were papered over, and I reached a point where I couldn't take it anymore and had to try something else. I had to clear my head. I had to reset my brain. I had to get my real life in order and figure out work's place in it. I probably read far too many articles on recovering from burnout and maintaining a proper work-life balance. Surprisingly, not all of those articles were at medium.com. And though I placed a lot of blame on those in charge, I realized that I was at fault as well. So before returning, it was really important to me to set boundaries to be clear about why I became so dissatisfied. I probably pushed it a little bit with airing some grievances, but I didn't see how this could move forward without that. And I know how fortunate I am. I don't think I could have said those things and had such conversations with many other employers, especially ones I hadn't worked with before. But I feel like both sides have acknowledged where things went wrong and how they can get better. So we're giving it another try and hopefully it works out well. I'm looking forward to working again with writers and editors I've always liked and respected. And frankly, I'm happy to have a writing job again. Those are increasingly rare in the bleak landscape that is currently sports media. I'm eager to see where it goes, especially with some longer form pieces. So will that affect the podcast? Not if I can help it. Although, yeah, that and a couple other things pushed it back a few days this week. I really enjoy doing this, and I'm grateful that anyone is listening. I'm grateful for you listening. And if I'm doing more writing on sports media, there's a lot of other stuff I'll want to get out of my head. But I need to create that outlet for myself. It doesn't exist anywhere else anymore. I need that change-up, that palate cleanser. And it's still a creative challenge that I welcome. The podcast isn't anywhere close to where I'd like it to be. There are many other things I want to try, places I want to go with it. 
Thank you for sticking with me as I continue to keep those pedals moving. Hey, speaking of pedals moving, can I talk about bicycles for a minute? I don't currently own a bicycle and that probably won't change anytime soon, but I think I'm overdoing it at the gym with the exercise bike. There is chafing. It's kind of bothersome. My first thought is I'm doing something wrong, like not having the seat adjusted properly. Do I, do I need to buy some padded bike shorts for the gym? Come on, man. I got to mix it up. Can't just do one thing. Please advise via email at thepodcast at gmail.com. So bad planning on my part resulted in a podcast crunch this week. We released one episode just before this one. Why? Why indeed, kiddo. Apologies for the logjam in your podcast provider. The episode just before this one includes my two Y Sports radio appearances from this week. Yep, just two. I didn't do radio on Monday. The wise guys took the day off. So we have another episode to fill up, which should be fun and necessary to catch up on a couple of things. And it should have been done earlier in the week, but yeah. Hey, we're finally getting to HBO's Watchmen, but let's begin with the movie review. Four years ago, in a review of Terminator Genesis, a movie that's already been rightly forgotten because it's terrible, I wrote that the Terminator franchise should just be killed off for good. It's not that filmmakers had run out of ideas. Genesis actually made some bold choices in trying to reinvent the Terminator mythology, the role that the killer robot played with Sarah Connor, and the ultimate fate of John Connor. They were just bad choices, made to try and create something different. Ultimately, that's all these movies can do, is to try to do something different. Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines, had a bleak ending in which the good guys lost. They couldn't stop Judgment Day. That was actually pretty cool. Terminator Salvation took place in the apocalyptic future that we'd previously only heard about and seen in brief glimpses. And an infiltrator Terminator who didn't realize his true purpose was an intriguing idea. I'll defend that movie. I thought it was pretty good. So it's not that good Terminator movies can't be made. But no matter how many keep getting cranked out, none of them will ever be better. No Terminator movie is ever going to be better than Terminator 2 Judgment Day. But that film is nearly 30 years old, and Terminator is an intellectual property that movie studios are going to keep ringing for content, convincing James Cameron to take a producer credit and paycheck, maybe chime in on the script, and Arnold Schwarzenegger gets to reprise what's probably his most iconic role. My name is Sarah Connor. August 29, 1997. It was supposed to be Judgment Day. But I changed the future. Saved three billion lives. Enough of a resume for you? No. You may have changed the future. But you didn't change our fate. Was Terminator Dark Fate worth making? Well, that depends on how much you love the Sarah Connor character, and perhaps more specifically, Linda Hamilton's portrayal of her. Terminator Genesis had Sarah Connor, but it was a rebooted version of her, played by Amelia Clark, that really changed her narrative. Dark Fate sticks to a familiar storyline, the one from Terminators 1 and 2. 
It ignores all the other movies that were made afterwards. That was the smart way to go. Scrape off the barnacles, stop trying to reinvent and reimagine, and whatever other re-words apply. Stick with the story that most people remember and go from there. So Dark Fate essentially picks up where T2 Judgment Day leaves off. And right away, director Tim Miller, filming a script that had eight writers on it, slaps you in the face with a development that shakes up the previously established Terminator mythology. It's a really well-done cold open, thanks largely to some fantastic de-aging and digital replacement CGI work done on Linda Hamilton, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and... well, that would be a spoiler. Unfortunately, it's one you can find online. That's just the culture we live in now. Once again, we have something different, but it's the continuation of the core story rather than a prequel or reboot. So I suppose it feels right. Unfortunately, it just becomes the same movie we've seen before. A Terminator is sent back to our time from the future to eliminate someone who becomes an important figure years from now, a leader in the resistance against the machines. In this case, it's Daniela Ramos, played by Natalia Reyes, a young woman taking care of her father and brother while working at a factory in Mexico City. This new Terminator, the Rev-9 model, played by Gabriel Luna from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., is similar to the T-1000 from T-2 in that it can liquefy, shapeshift, and turn its body parts, hands and arms mostly, into lethal weapons. The key difference is that this Terminator has the familiar metal endoskeleton underneath all that shapeshifting metal, and the endoskeleton can separate itself and move on its own. So at times, the Rev-9 can basically be two Terminators, the T-800 and T-1000. Columbus and Flagstaff from Zombieland 2 can explain the difference to you. Oh, and the exterior of this Rev-9 is Mexican, making it Donald Trump's worst nightmare. Or maybe it's his dream. A killer robot disguised as a Mexican to kill a Mexican? Okay, let's not continue down this path. Gabriel Luna is American-born, a Texas native, by the way. Although there was a scene taking place at a detention facility with migrants and refugees caged up. But honestly, I don't think that was trying to make any political statement. There are story reasons for that setting. Anyway... Another factor which sets this Terminator story apart is what's sent back in time to protect the Rev-9's target. The good guys didn't send an older model Terminator to fight the new one. Grace, played by the wonderful Mackenzie Davis, is human, but has been enhanced with robotics to give her the kind of strength, speed, and analytical capabilities to take on a Terminator. Future shit, as she explains at one point. Grace can fight the Rev-9 head-to-head, but isn't powerful enough to actually take the thing out. All she can really do is help Danny get away and hopefully avoid detection. Almost human. I am human. Just enhanced. You know, increased speed and strength. Which means I can rip your throat out if you piss me off, so don't. Your turn. When I was about her age, a Terminator was sent to kill me. To stop the birth of my son, John. Leader of the resistance. We changed the future. Saved three billion lives. You're welcome. But a new Terminator visiting from the future gets the attention of Sarah Connor, whose life mission is to destroy those robots. She's still the badass she was in T2, and still a fugitive, but connections she's made over the years hook her up with some of the best weapons and gadgets the military has to offer. 
Sarah quickly becomes protective of Danny, whom she sees as a new version of herself, a young woman whose life was thrown into complete upheaval when a robot from the future came to kill her because she plays an important role in humanity's fight against the machines. Where does Arnold Schwarzenegger and his old T-800 come in? That might be the most intriguing aspect of this new story. If you've seen the trailers, you know that Grace, Danny, and Sarah eventually go to it for help. As you might guess, Sarah's not too keen on working with the robot that went after her and then her son. But this isn't a situation like we saw in Terminator Genesis either. Remember, that movie never happened. This T-800 has essentially been in retirement, gone into seclusion. What happens to a robot after its objective has been completed? How does something programmed with artificial intelligence continually adapt to its surroundings for 30 years? How does a Terminator go about living? It's a fascinating premise that could spawn at least a few short stories. Hard sci-fi stuff. This movie can only explore it so much when there's a bigger story to serve, but it does what it can in limited time, especially with finding the humor in the situation. I'm going to help you protect the girl. So you're Carl. That's what everyone calls me, yes. I'm never gonna fucking call you Carl. Story elements like these make Terminator Dark Fate appealing, and a worthy sequel to the first two movies. Above all, it's great to see Linda Hamilton play Sarah Connor again, and pick her story up 30 years later with all of the trauma she's dealt with. But, again, it's still following the same beats, and can't help but mostly feel like a movie we've seen before. Robot comes from the future to kill somebody. That somebody and friends try to elude the killer. Eventually, they have to make a stand and try to destroy the thing that supposedly can't be destroyed. Until a solution is figured out because the movie just has to end at some point. Maybe audiences already figured out that this looked like the same story. Terminator Dark Fate finished number one in last weekend's box office, but performed far below expectations in earning $29 million. There are reports that the movie could end up costing $130 million in losses for the three studios which finance this project, and that will probably kill any ambitions for sequels. At least until enough time passes for somebody to think there's an appetite for a Terminator movie again, with some kind of misguided idea for a sequel, reboot, or reimagining. I'll give Terminator Dark Fate three and a half stars, mostly for some great action sequences and impressive special effects, along with some compelling character stuff, but it's ultimately a movie you've seen before. And you probably already knew that. I'll be back. Let's take a quick break so I can ask you to please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. You might have to search under my name, Ian Castleberry, C-A-S-S-E-L-B-E-R-R-Y, until we get a few more shows in our archive. Also, please leave a rating, or even better, a review if you're so inspired. We can use the signal boost in that big Apple Podcast space. Any feedback you can offer is very much appreciated, and I don't take that time or effort for granted. The podcast is also available for listening, downloads, and subscriptions on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Overcast, iHeartRadio, and there's something called Himalaya now? 
I'll try to get on that if you use it. Oh, and TuneIn. Being on TuneIn means you should be able to listen to this on Amazon Echo, but Alexa can't quite pick up the difference between podcasts and podcast. Yeah, maybe I should have picked a different name. But you can still find us on the TuneIn app and website if that's how you like to listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening and downloading. Are you a member of or do you associate with members of the white supremacist organization known as the 7th Cavalry? No. Do you believe that transdimensional attacks are hoaxes staged by the U.S. government? I don't know, maybe. Are you a member of or do you associate with members of the white supremacist organization known as the 7th Cavalry? You already asked me that. Okay, I've been saying for the past couple of podcasts that I want to talk about HBO's new Watchmen series. So let's do that. When the series was first announced, I think there was a mix of excitement and trepidation among fans and media. Would this be another adaptation of the 1986 comic book series by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons? Would a TV series get it right, telling the story episodically? Many thought Zack Snyder's 2009 film missed the point of the graphic novel, Yet maybe that was in part because he had to cram a 12-part story into a nearly three-hour movie. Probably not if you look at Snyder's filmography. Nuance and subtext are not among his specialties. But did we really need to see Watchmen adapted again, even if it was done better? Was this going to be a sequel to Watchmen? If so, would it lean more closely to the original comic books or riff off Snyder's movie? Maybe both? Based on how Watchmen ended, it didn't seem like there was more story to tell, at least in regards to the main characters of the original story, such as Rorschach, Dr. Manhattan, Silk Spectre, Night Owl, and Ozymandias. Maybe the one question worth exploring was whether or not Ozymandias' scheme to unite the world with a global disaster actually worked. And would superheroes be necessary in a peaceful world, even if they existed underground and outside the law? Showrunner Damon Lindelof quickly shot down the idea that this Watchmen series would be another adaptation of the same story we've already seen. We all immediately should have been thankful for that. He also said this wouldn't be a sequel either, but a remix. Okay, but what the hell does that mean? Judging from the first episode, what Lindelof seemed to mean by remix is that this wasn't a sequel in terms of being directly connected to the original series or movie. The story takes place in that world, but almost all of the characters we knew are gone, more than 30 years later. But there were several references to characters from the original series. Dr. Manhattan is still living on Mars in self-exile, having decided that humanity was too complicated to deal with. We see the Owl ship, the aircraft built by Night Owl, being used by the police. Was that THE Owl ship? Or was this a similar version issued to the Tulsa, Oklahoma Police Department? And Jeremy Irons' character sure seemed familiar to diehard Watchmen fans. I wondered if there would be many parallels to that 1986 series, but in a 2019 setting. Would this essentially be a retelling of the Watchmen story, but with different players and circumstances? The central question, the driving narrative of the original comic book series, was who killed the comedian? For this new series, the central question appeared to be, spoiler alert if you haven't watched the first episode, who killed Sheriff Judd Crawford? End of spoiler alert. 
As Rorschach uncovered the truth behind the comedian's murder, which was part of a global conspiracy, so would Sister Knight, played by Academy Award winner Regina King, solve Crawford's murder and expose a new, sinister conspiracy intended to essentially blow up the world in the name of saving it. By the way, Crawford is played by Don Johnson. Great to see him back on TV again. Hey, Don. Although the Rorschach stand-in for this new story might turn out to be Looking Glass, played by Tim Blake Nelson. But the similarities, such as a mask that obscures his entire face, and the reflective material for that mask is a fantastic special effect. A deep cynicism toward virtually everything, and a constant unease to stay alert for an impending conflict, might be a red herring intended to mislead us a bit. The original series had the accompanying story, Tales of the Black Freighter, a comic book analogy to what was happening in the world. The TV series has American Hero Story, a parody of Ryan Murphy's American Crime Story anthology that appears to play a similar role in this new narrative. In 1986, the Cold War and the threat of nuclear conflict loomed heavily over the story. In 2019, the threat of white supremacy causing total anarchy is the underlying gunpowder ready to be ignited. After watching the next two episodes, however, especially the third one, titled She Was Killed by Space Junk, that appears to be far too simple an explanation or attempt to understand what this whole thing is about. For one thing, there is definite follow-up to many story elements from the original series. Besides the references previously mentioned, these people live with recurring storms of baby squids raining upon them. Squids are a key element from the climax of the Watchmen comic book, perhaps the strongest indication that this is working from the source material and likely ignoring Snyder's movie. Most importantly, some strong ties between the 1986 story and 2019 version are now established. FBI agent Lori Blake, played by Gene Smart, is the older version of Silk Spectre, who fought crime alongside Night Owl, Rorschach, Ozymandias, and Dr. Manhattan. Her mother was also a vigilante crime fighter, and it was revealed that the comedian was her father. She's now adopted his last name. Blake was also in a relationship with Dr. Manhattan, something she clearly hasn't gotten over based on what we see from her 30 years later. And now she's the top agent for the government's anti-vigilante task force. Is she trying to stop society from repeating its previous mistakes with masked superheroes? She also doesn't seem to like that the Tulsa police now wear masks to conceal their identities and protect their loved ones. Does she feel like she can accomplish more within the system than outside of it? Or is it just that Blake considers these new vigilantes wannabes and resents them for not being the heroes she remembers? If they were even heroes. You knew him, right? Back in the old days, when he was Ozymandias. No my autograph? What? Well, you clearly have a hard-on for the past, so what do you want me to sign? I wrote my graduate thesis on the police strike of 77, when you and your ex were in D.C. And by ex, I mean Dr. Manhattan. 
the most powerful being in existence. Sorry for not pretending that I don't know who you are because we're supposed to leave famous people alone. And it's confirmed that Jeremy Irons' character is Adrian Veidt, who is the superhero Ozymandias, the so-called smartest man on the planet, and the mastermind behind the villainous scheme in the original series to attack New York and kill thousands of people under the ruse of an alien attack. Giant squid! In the belief that it would bring the most powerful nations of the world together, uniting them against a common threat. What Veidt is up to isn't quite clear, though it appears that his immediate priority is to escape from whatever prison he's in. That prison appears to be a vast European countryside, where Veidt lives in a castle with servants who seem to be clones. Is he imprisoned by Dr. Manhattan, which is certainly a conclusion that can be drawn from the original series? Is Veidt attempting to suck up to Manhattan by writing and staging a play based on his life? Or is he mocking his omnipotent captor? You seem to suspect me of criminal activities, as if I were a dastardly forest brigand, or worse, some sort of republic serial villain. I am neither, sir, and I assure you that my activities are purely recreational in nature. All best wishes and encouragement. Adrian Veidt. With the ties that Laurie Blake and Adrian Veidt have to Dr. Manhattan, does this mean we'll eventually see Dr. Manhattan in this series? Or will he just be an overarching presence with vague, or even not so vague, references to him? We've already seen a stage version of the all-powerful being with his blue skin and his schwantz dangling out for everyone to see. Some fans have theorized that the male and female clones who serve Vite are versions of John Osterman, the man who becomes Dr. Manhattan, and Janie Slater, the woman he was in love with and his original wife. Oh, those fan theories. There are already so many of them in recaps, think pieces, tweets, Facebook groups, and Reddit boards. Watchmen is going to be one of those TV shows for which fans are going to be constantly filling in the blanks and guessing where the story will go. That can be fun, but I'll try to do my best to avoid a lot of it. Fan theories ruined Mr. Robot for me, and I don't want the same to happen here. Although, to be fair, Mr. Robot's increasing incoherence and inaccessibility have much more to do with my disinterest over the past two seasons. I'm sure I won't be able to entirely resist, though. Damn it. There are people who believe that this world is fair and good. It's all lollipops and rainbows. We don't do lollipops and rainbows. We know those are pretty colors that just hide what the world really is. Black and white. I probably haven't talked enough about the actual show itself. As Angela Abar, or Sister Knight, Regina King is fantastic in this, getting to play a badass masked vigilante who beats the shit out of racists, more than likely to deal with the trauma of being attacked by members of the white supremacist group, which calls itself the 7th Cavalry, and wears Rorschach masks in warped, misguided tribute. She's also a mother and wife trying to protect her family. And as it turns out, her adopted kids are the orphan children of her murdered partner. Now she's coping with the murder of her mentor and friend, Judd Crawford. 
But was there more to Judd than she realized? Some dark secrets he was hiding from her? And maybe everyone else? And she found out that the guy who claims to have killed the sheriff, an old man in a wheelchair, is actually her grandfather, played by Louis Gossett Jr. Angela is a complex character providing a wonderful outlet for King's talents. She's great and is continuing to have her moment. The setting of the series is also fascinating, showing the consequences of what happened 30-plus years ago. Tulsa is a societal petri dish, thanks to Senator Joe Keene, whose father, John, authored the bill which outlawed costumed superheroes. Police detectives are sanctioned vigilantes, working outside the law to accomplish justice. And though right-wing extremism appears to pose the greatest threat, countermeasures fueled by liberal ideals might not provide the solution either. For instance, cops needing their firearms unlocked by dispatch before using them. No internet or cell phones. Although maybe those are good things. Wait, no! You wouldn't be listening to this podcast in that instance. Descendants of those involved in the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, a real-life event, receive reparations, derisively called Redfordations, as a shot at President Robert Redford, for their losses and suffering. Naturally, that causes resentment and a deep divide among some whites and blacks. We haven't seen what's happening in the rest of the country or the rest of the world. Tulsa appears to be a testing ground, and it's a fertile setting for the series. This isn't a big city where superhero epics typically take place. This is the middle of the country, flyover country, populated by the average people we see as normal, yet where certain beliefs, prejudices, and biases tend to exist more outwardly than they do in metropolitan regions. And it was the site of one of the most underreported racial conflicts in U.S. history. At the very least, Lindelof is teaching us about something not nearly enough of us knew about, an event that isn't a part of regular school history curriculums and that hasn't received the documentary treatment that informs so many of us nowadays. Oh, one more thing that sets Watchmen apart from everything else on TV right now? The music. The soundtrack by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, who may be the most intriguing film and TV scorers right now. The music on this show pulses. It doesn't just accompany the visuals, but it gives them more life. It adds to the depth of the characters and the setting they exist in. It's creepy, it's catchy, and it's distinct, giving the show a musical identity. The music product adds something to the show too, with three volumes being released at different dates on vinyl. Those fortunate enough to get a copy of Volume 1 saw that the album materials are part of the story, further enriching the entire experience. I don't do vinyl, so I'll keep waiting for a digital release. Volume 1 of the Watchmen soundtrack is streaming right now, so that'll have to do. At least I can listen to that. But I still want to be able to listen to the music offline. Hopefully soon. Yeah, I still do that. That's a whole lot of ingredients in one soup, man. And we're only three episodes in, with six more to go. Watchmen isn't for everybody, and I wonder if those unfamiliar with the comic book will be puzzled by many of the elements it introduces. 
Or maybe those are just references they can gloss over and still enjoy the series while the hardcore geeks go giddy over those Easter eggs. Yep, guilty. There's also an accompanying website, PDpedia, named after one of the anti-vigilante task force agents, and a companion podcast produced by HBO. Those supplements have made other HBO productions, like Westworld and Chernobyl, so much richer, and it's fun to see them utilized further here. So for those wondering what the most intriguing, arguably the best, show of the fall TV season is, this might be it. Has it stopped, Master? No, Miss Crookshanks. It's only just begun. And that's the podcast. By the way, it was suggested to me that I have a trivia question for listeners each episode. I don't know if I'll do that every time out. Something will have to occur to me, like it does now. We had that clip from Don Johnson's 1986 hit rock single, Heartbeat, earlier. And it really was a hit, by the way, reaching number five on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. And hey, I'm not making fun of Don Johnson. Was there any guy who didn't want to be him in those mid-80s Miami Vice days? Well, if you were alive, I guess. We're old here. But who played guitar on that single? He appears in the video, too, but you'll probably get the answer if you watch it. Do you know it off the top of your head? Send your answer to thepodcast at gmail.com. Will there be a prize? Uh, I'll have to work on that. You'll get mentioned on the podcast. No, that's not a big deal, I know. Once again, thank you for listening, and I'll keep hoping to hear from you on Facebook and Twitter, both at the podcast, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-S, email, or Apple Podcasts. I'm glad we got the opportunity to focus on some pop culture after being so sports-heavy in recent episodes. I still did do some sports radio this week, though, as you hopefully heard in the previous episode. Ideally, I wouldn't bunch two podcasts so close together like this, but there was some remembering and relearning with my return to Awful Announcing to begin the week, and that threw me off the schedule I keep saying I want to stick to. Hopefully it'll all go more smoothly and better planned next week. Until then, we have three weeks until Thanksgiving, and the holiday season we've probably all been awaiting as of this recording. Still plenty of time to plan trips, dinners, side dishes, and all that, right? Right? Or is it already too late? Uh-oh. Somebody's getting their stuffing from a box, gravy from a jar, and cranberry sauce from a can again. Uh-oh.